Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Dr. Renee N. Gilm. Renee is a professor at Northwestern University, where she runs the Body and Media Lab. The lab conducts research on issues of women's body images, especially the cultural norms that reinforce the objectification, fat talk, and idealized media images of women. Her new book, Beauty Sick, How the Cultural Obsession with Appearance Hurts Girls and Women, uses research from the lab, as well as one-on-one interviews with a diverse range of women, to highlight how our society's obsession with looks can adversely affect women. Beauty Sick is available in hardcover, and a teaching guide for the book can be found on harperacademic.com. So on the phone right now, we have Renee Engeln, author of Beauty Sick. And Renee, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right. Um, So in the book, you mentioned the process of taking your author photo and how that was for you. Um, So outside of that, how has beauty sickness and these issues you talk about in the book um, affected your life, both growing up, um, in your current everyday life, and how do you um, deal with these issues that you talk about that plague so many other women? That's a good question. Um, I'm a woman, and I live in this culture, so of course beauty sickness affects me too. I'm not not free of it. I I didn't get a vaccination or something like that. (laughs) Uh, I certainly don't move around in the world never thinking about how I look or never feeling unhappy about how I look. I notice new wrinkles. I notice my body changing with age. My skin still gets teenage-style acne on occasion, and I wish that that didn't bother me so much when it does happen, but... Uh, What I do notice is that the older I get and the more time I spend studying these issues and writing about these issues and talking to women about this, the more I think about those kinds of experiences differently. So when I was young, I really took for granted that a natural part of being a woman was spending a lot of time and energy on your appearance. Um, I'm at a point where I no longer think that's natural, and I really want to push against that idea whenever I can. So I question my own beauty behaviors a lot more. Um, Do I really want to wear shoes that hurt my feet just because they look better, right? And for me, the answer is usually no. Or do I need more clothes? Or could I cut down on how much makeup I use or how often I use it? Um, But those are all little things. I think probably the most important way I've seen my own feelings and behaviors around beauty evolve is that I see them now as existing in a a very particular political and economic context. So if I have a day where I'm feeling ashamed about how I look, I know that feeling isn't just about me. I know that it's tangled up with bigger issues, issues about gender equality, about fairness, about health. Um, I think it's hard to miss how often insults targeting a woman's appearance are used to silence women or distract from what they're saying, and I don't want to play into that system, so I do my best to push back against it, and I do my best not to insult myself either, um, because I think that's part of that whole system. Yeah, Renee, it's Kim here. Um, 
Uh, one of the things that I really liked about Beauty Sick was the sort of combination of the narrative and, and studies that you and your students do uh, in, in the lab, and also mm-hmm. the number of interviews that you conducted. Um, it reminded me a lot of Peggy Orenstein's Girls and Sex, for example. Um, mm-hmm. What interviewee sort of either shocked or moved you the most uh, in the series of interviews with young women that you conducted? I love doing those interviews. I feel like I could talk to women and girls about these issues endlessly because they've always got interesting things to say. I I wouldn't say that I was shocked by any interview overall. I think if you're you're paying attention to what women's lives are like, the content isn't really shocking. But I did find a lot of the interviews incredibly moving and inspiring and sometimes they broke my heart. I, I shed some tears during those interviews yeah, and, yeah. and even after reading about them. Um, I think a lot about Artemis. She's one of the, the yeah. first people you meet in the book. She's a, a high school girl uh, who told me that 50% of her brain space is dedicated to how she looks yeah. and that she can't work on her brain until she gets her body where it wants to be. Um, or I think a lot about MK um, in particular. MK is a woman in her 40s who just talks with this overwhelming longing about her desire to get back those years that she lost to beauty sickness, and that's really hard to hear. Um, if I had to pick a favorite, it would probably be Amy. I, I loved my interview with Amy because she was raw and vulnerable, but she's also like funny and furious and hopeful, and I feel like I want to take her chapter and assign it to everyone who says, fat shaming is a great way to help people lose weight, or or to anyone who thinks that if you just say, love yourself the way you are, that, that that's a cure for all that, that ails us. So she was one of my favorites, for sure. Yeah, and I, I really liked um, I really liked her chapter, too. And uh, I'm wondering, what would your response be? So let's say you, let's say you did, let's say you did um, develop an entire curriculum around that particular chapter. So what mm-hmm. would your response be to people who argue that, um, fat shaming in particular is a good thing because it promotes health for women. I think so many people believe that, um, even if they're not saying it out loud. I, I think a lot of people believe that. But the good news is that that belief is so easily shot down by paying even the tiniest bit of attention to science and to logic. So we know that fat shaming is rampant. If fat shaming were effective at promoting health or weight loss, we wouldn't see the obesity rates we see. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that people who are heavier would lose weight if only they knew that other people didn't find their bodies attractive, right? That's absurd. I don't think there's any fat person living in this culture who hasn't already heard every awful thing we have to say about fat people. Uh, we know even five-year-olds know stereotypes of fat people. Mm-hmm. So amplifying the voices of fat shamers does nothing good for public health. And instead, what the good science tells us is that feeling shamed and feeling stigmatized over your weight can actually lead you to gain weight, right? And that those feelings of being stigmatized tend to prompt unhealthy behaviors that can trigger things like binge eating. They make it harder for people to feel comfortable exercising or they do exercise. They make it more likely to quit and won't stick with it or enjoy it. Um, the, The overall issue that I think makes it a little easier to understand is that when you hate your body, you're not motivated to take care of it. 
Um, so I, I feel like I can't be clear enough about that. Fat shaming doesn't motivate health. It doesn't help people want to take care of their bodies. Um, and it's also cruel and petty to boot. So I think that's important to note as well. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting. I confess I haven't read the article yet, but there was an article earlier this week, I don't know if you saw it, that Lindy West wrote in The right. Guardian. Yeah, right. about, about how she's... on my Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about how she's not going to answer questions anymore. About, right. yeah. I, I can't imagine that if we think through it logically, that you really believe that someone who's fat not hating themselves is somehow a public health threat. Yeah. Right? It's, I think there's something deeper going on there, and I think we need to be more honest with ourselves about that. Uh, Lindy West is not making people gain weight. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah no, I want, I want to take that answer and just put it on a billboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do, too. There's a great point in that article, too, that if you want people to be healthier, you should help them feel more comfortable filling out and doing things and using their bodies. You shouldn't make them feel ashamed about their body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, jumping off of that, um, these common misconceptions, um, and I guess also the flip side of that, um, as opposed to feeling shame about your body, what would your response be to people who argue that uh, beauty can bring women self-esteem or even a sense of power? Well, uh, the sad news is that it's true. Right? Beauty can bring them in self-esteem and power. I think that's undeniable. But <laughs> the most important thing to note is that there are different types of power and there are different types of self-esteem. The self-esteem that comes from your looks is incredibly fragile. Right? It's entirely dependent on other people's approval. So that's not a stable source of self-esteem. It's a shaky little platform to stand on because it's, it's not about who you are. Right? It's about what other people think you are. So if you ask any teenage girl who posts some type of sexy picture of herself on social media and then anxiously monitors how many likes, how many you're so hot, you're so beautiful it gets, um, do, do we think that builds lasting, meaningful self-esteem? Uh, I, I don't think so. And it's the same thing with the power that beauty gives women. It's equally as fragile. Um, I'm a firm believer that our power as women should grow with age because we're accumulating wisdom and experience. It's not real power if somebody takes it away from you once you no longer look like you're in your 20s or your 30s. And it's not real power if it disappears the minute men no longer find you sexually desirable. I really want to see more women with the type of power that shake things up and make things right. The power to influence through your sexual lure, it's not that kind of power. It's a far cry from that kind of power. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, that objectification is a large part of our culture. Um, but one thing that I was thinking about as I read the book, um, so you talk a lot about women being objectified in their appearances. Mm-hmm. Um, when this happens to men, for example, um, a few weeks ago, there was a picture of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's butt that went around the Internet um, and went viral. <laughs> um, so when you know we have these behaviors towards men as well as women, um, but my question for you is for men... Is this as problematic as for women? Is it sort of? Is it an entirely separate issue? Mm-hmm. I, I did see those pictures when they were making the rounds. <laughs> I have to say, my mom would be pleased to hear me say that I was raised firmly in the moral camp that says two wrongs don't make right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really don't want this world to be remade so that men can be objectified as much as women. I think that's a 
cynical type of equality to shoot for. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think objectification of men is problematic, but I also believe that we need to be realistic about the fact that men, or at least heterosexual men, live in a really different social world than women do. So that the primary source of men's social currency is not their attractiveness. It's their competence, their success, how good they are at doing whatever it is they do. And that comes with stress, that comes with pressure, definitely. But women who work hard to get good at whatever it is they do don't get the chance to opt out of the beauty race. They can't trade their talent for looks in the same way men can. In fact, if anything, the more successful woman becomes, the more we focus on how she looks. So objectification is a problem when it's part of um, So I really believe that. But it is a different type of problem because it's happening in a different context. The impact it has um, is a little smaller. The impacts are less wide-ranging, I would say. That's interesting. Um, going back to Justin Trudeau, whenever people talk about him generally, um, it's always his accomplishments, how great he is, mm-hmm. and the fact that he's attractive. His attractiveness is always the secondary footnote. Right, it's bonus points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I still think it's rude to talk about Justin Trudeau's butt. (laughs) But also notice the fact that we're talking about people talking about Justin Trudeau's butt because we think it's interesting, because it stood out as unusual. Um, Nobody thinks it's unusual when when that happens on the Internet to any woman ever, right? So Mm -hmm. it tells you from the beginning that there is something different about it. Yeah, and you you talked you you mentioned uh, in the in your last answer the idea of different social worlds, and I'd, I'd kind of like to take a, a slightly different spin on the idea of different social worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the interviewees in Beauty Sick experience beauty sickness via the lens of heteronormative culture, and I'm mm-hmm. wondering, do you see beauty sickness operating similarly in queer communities? I think that's a really good question with a really complicated answer. Right. So the first thing to point out is that there is research suggesting that compared to heterosexual men, gay men are at increased risks for body dissatisfaction mm-hmm. and eating disorders. They have higher rates of muscle dysmorphia than straight men too. Um, so just as men and women aren't living in the same social world when it comes to beauty sickness, I would say that gay men and straight men likely aren't either. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an article a few years on BuzzFeed called It Gets Better Unless You're Fat. Yeah. They really talked a lot of these issues openly, and they talked about body shaming in the, in the gay community and how pernicious it can be. Um, that's something a lot of researchers have been really concerned about and focusing on. Uh, when it comes to women, what I think we see are more commonalities than differences across different sexual orientations and different identities. Uh, women in queer communities are still subject to objectification by the culture at large. Mm-hmm. Um, there really aren't safe spaces for women when it comes to that constant focus on your appearance. If you go out in the world, it's going to happen. Um, there is some data suggesting that women who identify as lesbian might have lower rates of body dissatisfaction, but that evidence has been pretty mixed. Uh, it seems to depend on the extent to which a woman really embraces the traditional heteronormative beauty ideals. Right. Um, the more you do that, the, the worse the news is for you, so the more we can let those go, that's good, um, regardless of, of where you fall on any identity spectrum. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, Renee, if women and men, because hopefully men are reading your book too. Um, I hope so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they should, they should, really more than women to an extent. Um 
So if men and women reading your book walk away with one thing, what would you want that to be? Would it be the same thing for men and women, or do you want them to get something different? I think it's the same thing, really. If, if I could have one big hope, it would be that people who read this book walk away recognizing that this beauty standard we hold women to in our culture is not innocent. Right? It has serious psychological, financial, and health-related costs. It's not just burdensome for women. It can actually be dangerous for some women. And beyond that, the big lesson is that the costs of beauty sickness aren't just individual. Right? They affect us at a broader societal level. If we want to increase the impact women have on our world, and I do, right, we, we have to let go of this obsession with women's appearance. Um, if we do that, we can free up more time and more money and more energy for world changing. Right? And I think we need to turn down our focus on what women look like and turn up our focus on what women say and what women do in order to make that happen. Yeah, that's really that's really great. So we have one more question for you. Sure. We asked this of all of our podcast guests. Okay. Uh, since primarily our target audience in terms of marketing are college professors like yourself uh, and their students, uh, mm -hmm. who was your favorite teacher? Oh wow! That's it always question. stumps. It always stumps everyone. It's like the best I, final question. No, I have been. I have been so lucky. I've had so many. Um, but if I if I had to pick one, I think I would pick one of my college professors, um, Ed Diener. He's he's retired now, though. He's still pretty active. He does a lot. He studies happiness, and I worked in his lab and took a lot of his classes when I was an undergraduate. Um, and what I loved about him is that he could get up on a stage and present this great scientific idea and move people with it, right? That he could get people excited about learning and excited about applying science to real world issues. And I think that that's really stuck with me. It's something I want to be able to do. If I can ever be even a fraction as good at it as he was, that, that would be a big win for me. That's awesome. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Well, Renee, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great talking with you. Have a good day. You, you too. too. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.